I do hope that you have been reading along uh, this week in our Focus 52 chapter in the book of Lamentations. It's a, it's a bit of a difficult chapter to read as we read about uh, the siege of Babylon on the city of Jerusalem and we see the despicable things and the, the great famine that has spread across the city. It's a very hard chapter to stomach. But I believe that there is a powerful message of redemption and a beautiful affirmation of the process of salvation to be found in our study tonight. Amen. We're in the book of Lamentations chapter 4. I know you've been standing for a few minutes now, so we're going to read two verses in your hearing. And we'll let you be seated in Jesus' name. Lamentations chapter 4 and verse 1. How is the gold become dim? How is the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top of every street. The precious sons of Zion, comparable to, and somebody read this with me, fine gold. Not ordinary gold, not copper, not silver. It says fine gold. How are they esteemed as earthen pitchers, the work of the hands of the potter? I want to slow down a little bit as we begin this message tonight. Uh, but I've asked the Lord to help us get where we are going. And for just a few minutes tonight, I want to preach to you, church family, the glorious gold of God. The glorious gold of God. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come into your house among your people. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear and receive a word from you tonight and that you would stir us and that you would shake us and that you would bring your glory into this house. And we pray it all in the matchless name of Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Clap unto the Lord and you may be seated tonight. Jeremiah is a great prophet, a man who was mightily used by God. God showed him a great many things that were to transpire in the earth. But not only was Jeremiah a great and a mighty prophet, but if you study the writings of Jeremiah as literature, you will quickly understand that Jeremiah was a poetic genius. Not only was he a great prophet, but he was a mastermind of writing poetry. And the book of Lamentations, I don't want to bore you uh, with this tonight, but there is a principle here I want to get into your spirit as we start this study together. The book of Lamentations is a collection of poems written by the prophet Jeremiah. And if you study the structure of those poems, you will find that they are very intentionally written. The kind of poetry he wrote you can't accidentally pin. It's not something you're just going to throw together, but the structure is so very intentional. If you were to study the structure of this poetry in academia, you would uh, know and understand that what he has written is called in academia a chiastic acrostic. And yes, I learned two new words studying for this message tonight. But very simply, an acrostic is a kind of poem where every line begins with a new letter of the alphabet. The first line starts with A, the second line starts with B, and so on and so forth. 
And chiastic simply means that it is written with a symmetry so that what appears in the first verse also appears in the last verse. What appears in the second, the second to last, so on and so forth. And what I want you to understand tonight is that the first three chapters have a very intentional structure. But when we come to the fourth chapter of the book of Lamentations, that chiastic structure suddenly disappears. And the intentional symmetry that is found in the beginning of the book of Lamentations suddenly is no more. And it's as though the prophet Jeremiah, as he went to put pen to paper in this fourth chapter, that he is trying to signal something to us through his writing. You see, the structure... The symmetry has disappeared from his writing. And it's as though the prophet is trying to tell us what you are about to read, the famine that you are about to read of, the great tragedy that you are about to read, never was supposed to be this way. You see, God brought a structure to the children of Israel. There was a symmetry. There was a structure that was supposed to be there. But we read of a people who had abandoned the laws of God. And as the prophet Jeremiah looks at the city that's in flames and looks at the famine that is in the land, it's as though he's crying out to us that it wasn't supposed to be like this. So as he puts pen to paper and he begins to write the very first line of Lamentations 4, he uses the word ekah, he uses the word how. It's a very interesting word in the Hebrew because it is both an exclamation and a question. It's like he's looking around saying, how could this have happened? How could the famine have gotten this bad? But at the back of his mind, he knows why. And he knows it shouldn't have ever been like this. He says, how the gold has become dim. How the most fine gold changed. He goes on to say that the precious sons of Zion comparable to fine gold. How are they esteemed as earthen pitchers? The work of the hands of the potter. See what once were vessels of fine gold. What once was a vessel that was worthy to be used in the tabernacle of the Most High. What once was distinguished from everything else in the land. What once shone with a beauty and a luster that you simply couldn't find in any other kind of vessel. What once was fine gold has grown dim. See, fine gold was beautiful. A fine gold had a, a, an incredible property about it that it wouldn't tarnish and that it wouldn't corrode. And uh, in early Mesopotamia, in the biblical times, uh, this fine gold was associated as a divine metal because of this quality. Because you could craft something out of fine gold and it wouldn't corrode over time and it wouldn't tarnish. It was a beautiful metal to work with. You see, gold isn't supposed to grow dim. So why is this happening? Why is this happening, Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah tells us very plainly why this is happening in Jeremiah, the ninth chapter and the thirteenth verse. This is happening, and the Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked therein, but have walked after the imagination of their own hearts. And after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. You see, this is a people who have uh, turned a deaf ear to the voice of the prophet and have hardened their hearts to the written word of God. 
Matter of fact, it got so bad for the prophet Jeremiah that just a couple of chapters later, the men of Ananoth directly uh, persecute him and they threaten him and they say, prophesy no more in the name of the Lord or we will kill you by our own hands. See, it's a people who their heart was far from the law of God and they didn't want to hear the preacher preach the word of God. God forbid a man of God under the unction of the Holy Ghost get behind a pulpit and call sin, sin. God forbid the the prophet, the man of God, get up and tell you, thus saith the Lord. God forbid a man of God begin to speak to the people. But why did they hate the spoken word of God? If I can butcher the English language for just a moment tonight and and tell you that I believe it is because the prophet, or can I say the prophet, always has a nasty habit of interrupting the program. See, the prophetic has, it doesn't go very well with the program. Israel had their program all figured out. They knew when they were supposed to say the blessings. They knew how to serve with lip service. But the prophet has a nasty little habit of interrupting the program. You see, the program is God. The the prophet, the prophecy is God speaking through a man to mankind to tell them this is what is about to transpire. This is what is about to happen in the earth. But the program is when man speaks to mankind and says this is how we're going to do things around here. You see, the program is we're going to open our doors at about 5.35. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of prayer. Then after that, the ushers are going to bring you um, into the sanctuary. We're going to have a little bit of worship. And God forbid you stay in the altar worshiping. We need you to go back and sit down because it's time for a motivational message. Hey, somebody, I was raised under old kind of preaching that said, God, you can take this service whenever you want it. If God wants to fall in the prayer room and take this thing, he can fall in the prayer room. If he wants to fall during worship service, God, you can interrupt our program. You can take this thing during worship service. If God wants to move on the heart of a backslider in the middle of this message tonight, don't you wait for me to put this microphone down. You just come and find yourself a place at this altar. The world can keep its program. The program isn't going to put your family back together. The program isn't going to heal your marriage. The program isn't going to bring your lost children back to the house of God. You can keep the programs. You can keep the flashing lights. I just want the glory of God. You see, the prophetic has a nasty habit of interrupting the program. The prophet proclaims how the gold has grown dim. Gold's not supposed to grow dim. It's not supposed to tarnish. It's not supposed to corrode. Ever since mankind came in contact with gold, they, they captured their heart and their imagination for that very reason. And you see, early metal workers, when they found these nuggets of gold, they quickly realized that just a, a small, a short, a couple steps of process could turn that gold into something that could be used. Something that could be fashioned and formed and shaped. See, if you wanted to find gold in biblical times, they didn't have access to the machinery that we do. You would be walking along a river and gold was normally found in a riverbed. 
and the sparkle of that gold would catch the eye of that passerby and they would pull up the gold out of that river. But you see, the problem with a nugget of gold that you pull out of the river, it's been in that river for a long time. There's sediments that have attached itself to that gold. There's some gravel and some sand that's been embedded into that gold. So I began, I, I don't know what kind of questions keep you up at night, but the question that's been keeping me up at night the last couple of days are how on earth did early metal workers do anything with gold? So I, uh, I called our local library and asked them if they had any books on early pyrometallurgy. And luckily they did, and Brother Stephen brought me a book that had quite a bit on it. And I began to realize uh, that when they brought that gold out of the water, in order to clean that gold, they would put it into a basin. And they would fill that basin with water, and they would take it through a process of panning and sluicing. You see, when you put that gold nugget into the water, the water begins to wash away the sediments. It begins to wash away all of the things that have attached itself to that nugget of gold. And it blows my mind. I can't begin to fathom how people can still sprinkle, baptize, and believe they're fulfilling a biblical commandment. Can you see, every time I pick up this black leather-bound book, I find confirmation that there is only one Lord, that there is only one faith, and there is only one baptism. Listen, you can't clean gold by sprinkling it with water. You can't... Romans chapter 6 says we are buried with Christ. You can't bury a body by sprinkling it with dirt. The Israelites didn't leave Egypt by passing through a rain shower. They had to pass through the water. If you want to clean gold, you've got to pass through the water. If you want to leave and escape bondage, you have to pass through the water. If you want to be born again, you must pass through the water. It washes away. Everything that's attached itself to that gold nugget. But you've got a problem. Because now, now you have the outside of the gold clean, but there are still impurities on the inside of the gold. And simple water won't wash away impurities on the inside of the gold. So I began to read that they would take this gold and expose it to very hot temperatures. And as it sat in that furnace, the impurities inside that gold would begin to rise to the top. And would begin to mix with the air and they'd begin to float away from that gold. But there were some impurities they, they were a little harder to deal with. They required a little bit of a hotter fire. And the longer you left that gold nugget in the furnace, the impurities would start to rise to the top. And the metal worker would take an object, a tool, and he'd scrape off the impurities. And he'd let it sit in the fire just a little bit longer. And as the impurities rose to the surface, he would scrape it off. And after a while of being in the fire, he had something that was finally pure gold. He's got gold that's passed through the water. And he's got gold that's been passed through the fire. And now it's something that can be used. But it has to be pure gold. See, pure gold is something that can be used. But, here, but here's the issue. It's very expensive to produce pure gold. It's very difficult to produce pure gold. So what, what we found in history is that early metal workers found a way to get around this and they would mix copper with the gold. Copper is a lot cheaper to acquire, you know. And they found something very interesting that if you put just a little bit of copper into the gold, Bishop, it melts at a much lower temperature. 
and it looks like the real thing because copper gives off a yellowish color, but really it's a copper and gold alloy. See, much of modern Christianity today is a gold and copper alloy. They want to look like the real thing, but they don't want to pay the cost of pure gold. See, producing pure gold is going to cost you more than just showing up to the church house on Easter Sunday and on Christmas and a few Sundays in between. Pure gold is going to cost you a little bit more than just lip service to God. Pure gold is going to cost you something. There's a, there's a book written by Matt Walsh. Uh, Brother Stephen has taught from it. Um, pastor has taught from it. And he makes this statement that, that shook me. He said, you could ask the majority of Christianity today what they have given up in their life in service of Jesus. And they wouldn't be able to give you an answer. And that fact wouldn't bother them. It wouldn't bother them that they still look like the world. It wouldn't bother them that they have a little bit of copper mixed in with their gold. Are you hearing me, church? But the problem, the problem you run into when you introduce copper to gold is that gold doesn't tarnish. And gold doesn't corrode. But copper does. Copper tarnishes. And when something tarnishes, it can no longer reflect light. It no longer reflects anything off of its surface. So what at first looks like it could pass for pure gold... What at first looks just the same as all the other gold. If you give it just enough time, that copper is going to begin breaking down. And it's going to begin to corrode. It's going to begin to deteriorate. And there is going to come a time when you're going to be able to look at that gold and say, Oh, how the gold has dimmed. Why? Because it wasn't pure gold. At some point in time, somebody introduced copper into it. Somebody introduced compromise into the church. And what should have stood the test of time now is tarnishing. It's now corroding. My God, I don't care what it costs. I don't care how much I've got to give up. I don't care how long I have to stay in the fire. I just want to be pure gold. I just want the glory of the Lord. But if pure gold is so expensive, if it's so difficult to create, what on earth do we use it for, preacher? Well, let me tell you. Thank you for asking. The Lord gave very specific instructions to his people when he uh, began to teach how to build the furniture of the tabernacle, of the Mishkan. And we find in the book of Exodus chapter 25 uh, that God is instructing his people to build an ark of the covenant. And inside that ark is going to contain the law. It's going to contain the uh, golden pot of manna that represented uh, the provision of the Lord. It's going to contain the the budded rod of Aaron that represents the miraculous nature of the Lord. But read this with me, Exodus chapter 25 and verse 10. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. He gives some more measurements. Read verse 11 with me. And thou shalt overlay it with, somebody say it. Pure gold, not ordinary gold, not copper gold alloy. You're going to overlay it with pure gold. If you read down to verse 17, it begins to talk about the mercy seat. He says, and thou shalt make a mercy seat of 
pure gold. What do you do with pure gold? You fashion a container of the word of God. And you place it into the Holy of Holies. And when it sits in the Holy of Holies, the glory of God, the Bible teaches us that the glory of God descends as a cloud and it rests upon the mercy seat of pure gold. You see, something that's pure gold, the glory of God can rest upon it. But that wasn't all that God desired to be made out of pure gold. If you turn to Exodus chapter 28, uh, God begins to give very specific instructions on the clothing that the priest was to wear when he entered the tabernacle. There was a robe, there was an ephod, there was a girdle of the ephod, there was a breastplate of judgment, there was onch stones on his shoulder, he had his head wrapped. And on top of all of that, in Exodus chapter 28 and verse 36 God says, and thou shalt make a plate of, say it with me, pure gold. Engrave upon it like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. Somebody say holiness. And thou shalt put upon it a blue lace that it may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of holy things, which the children of Israel shall hollow in their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead. Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzhak, affectionately known as Rashi, he teaches in accordance to the scripture that this plate of gold, this pure gold that is strapped across the forehead of the priest, it read, Kadosh, that Adonai, holiness to the Lord. And he wrote that as the high priest would walk through the tabernacle and as he would go about his duties in the house of God, that he would reach up and he would touch that plate of pure gold so that the fact of what was written on it would never leave his consciousness. You see, as he walked through the house of God, he would reach up and touch that plate of pure gold and he would remember holiness to the Lord. He'd be walking through the house of God and he would remember, there's a reason I'm not dressed like everybody else is dressed right now. He would be walking through the house of God and he would touch that pure gold and he would remember, I am part of a kingdom of priests. I am part of a holy nation. He would be walking through the tabernacle and when he touched the pure gold, he would remember God has called me to be holy. Church, there is a reason that we still preach holiness there is a reason that we still preach separation it's because you've been called to be a chosen generation a holy nation it still matters that we preach holiness unto the Lord he would touch that plate of pure gold and he would remember I've been called apart from this world you can tell the difference between a vessel of pure gold and an earthen vessel. And as Jeremiah put his pen to parchment to write the fourth chapter of Lamentations. He declared how the gold has dimmed. Media would, yeah, yeah, thank you. Can you go ahead and give me um, verse number two? Y'all just read my mind. Y'all are awesome. I love you guys. Lamentations chapter four and verse two. It says the precious sons of Zion comparable to Fine gold. Does anybody want to take a wild guess as to what fine gold literally translates to? Anybody have a wild guess? It literally translates to refined, pure gold. 
He said, the sons of Zion used to be pure gold. But the gold isn't what it used to be. The sons of Zion aren't what they used to be. What once was beautiful, pure gold. Gold that could be placed in the tabernacle. Gold that the glory of God could rest upon. What once used to be pure gold. Oh, how the gold has dimmed. And how the fine gold has changed. But you know, it's interesting. Even though the gold had dimmed, it still had just enough shine on it to attract the eye of Babylon. Remember where we are in the course of history in the book of Lamentations. Babylon has just came to seize Jerusalem. And they have cut off the food supply to the city, which is why there is such grievous, uh, grievous famine in the land. We read the despicable and the sad, selfish acts of mothers. The scripture says literally uh, boiling their own children to eat because there there's no food. That's where we are in history right now. But Daniel, the first chapter of Daniel teaches us that when Nebuchadnezzar first came to Jerusalem, that he took with him a part of the vessels of the house of God. Daniel chapter 1, I believe it's verse 2. He took with him a part of the vessels of the house of God. But that wasn't all that he came for. Just a couple verses down, we read that he also came in verse 4 for children in whom was What's it say? No blemish. Can I say it like this tonight? He came for the children who were pure gold. He came for children who there was no copper in them. There was no blemish in them. And church family, I, I wonder tonight as those young men looked around their city and they saw their city in flames and they saw the famine in the land. I wonder that when the men of Babylon came to them and said, come with us and we'll give you an education. Come with us and uh, we will give you food. If you would just come with us, we desire your knowledge. I wonder when those men came to them. Bishop, I wonder if the thought passed through their mind. You know, it's kind of nice to be desired. Mothers are literally eating their own children. And now these people say... They want me. It's kind of nice to be desired. And church family, please, please know my heart tonight. I don't mean to be facetious or flippant with the scripture. But I have seen this exact scenario destroy the lives of more people than I care to recount. Can I, can I, can I bring it home tonight? You know, my wife hasn't been giving me a lot of attention lately. And, the, and, that, and that new girl at work... She thinks there's something special about me. You know, it's kind of nice to be desired. You know, that coach has been calling us every week, Bishop. They say if we would just let our boy play, that they could do great things with him. I know he'd have to miss church on... No, you don't, you don't want me to preach this right now. I, I know that he'd have to miss church on Sundays, but it's kind of nice to be desired. Church, don't be deceived into thinking that the desire that this world has for you is greater than the love that God has for your soul. 
It wasn't the world that died for you on a cross. It wasn't the world that gave up everything for you. Listen, somebody, the Lord looked at Simon Peter in the book of Luke. I believe it's chapter 22. He looked at Simon. He said, Simon, 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 look at me. There's something I got to tell you, Simon. Simon, Satan hath desired you. Really? Really? Well, you know, Jesus, there's a lot of people that really don't desire me right now. There's a lot of people who aren't very happy that, that you're, you're uh, raising people from the dead and all that. There's a lot of people who aren't very happy with me right now. It's kind of nice to be desired, Jesus. But what's the rest of the verse say? Luke 22, verse 31. Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Here's the dirty little secret behind that. Satan used to be a guardian cherub in the throne room of God. He used to shine with a brightness. The glory of God used to reflect off of him when he walked the throne room of heaven. But because of his sin and because of the iniquity found in him, he was cast out of heaven and now he's become a tarnished vessel. He no longer reflects the glory of God. And as he walks through the earth, every time he sees a child of God, every time he sees a vessel of pure gold reflecting the glory of God, he only has one desire. And that desire is to sift you as wheat. That desire is to make you look like everybody else. It's to take the glory off of you. It's to tarnish your vessel. It's to make you look like everybody else. See, here's the, here's the little secret that those men from Babylon didn't tell those boys that day. Yeah, we're going to take you off to this kingdom. We're going to take you to Babylon University if I could. But when you get there, we're going to sit you at the king's table. And you're going to eat of the king's meat. Food that you used to not ever eat. Used to, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have even come close to this table. But we're going to sit you at this table and you're going to eat of the king's meat. And you're going to eat of, and you're going to drink of the king's drink. And we're going to teach you and instruct you in the language of the Chaldeans. And before you know it, what once used to be a vessel of pure gold. What once you used to be able to distinguish it from everybody else in the crowd. You used to be able to walk into a church service or, or walk anywhere in your city and you could point them out. Say, man, there goes a vessel of pure gold. There goes a child of God. Why? Because there is a marked difference about them. There used to be a marked difference about you, but after you spend a little bit of time at the king's table, eating the king's meat and drinking of the king's drink, suddenly it's a whole lot harder to tell the difference between the vessel of pure gold and the earthen vessel. And before you know it, the music is playing in Babylon. And everybody bows. They begin to bow to ideologies they never would have bowed their knee to before. They begin to bow to agendas that they never would have bowed their knee to before. Used to, you'd be able to tell who's a child of God because of what they wouldn't bow to. But now they look like everybody else. After you went to Babylon University, I couldn't tell a difference between you and the rest of the world anymore. After you went and sat at the king's table and you began to introduce copper into your gold, you know, I used to be able to tell a difference between you.
you in the world, but now I can't tell such a difference anymore. I never would have thought you would have bowed to that agenda. I never would have thought you would have bowed to the music, but suddenly, how the gold has grown dim. There's a book written by uh, a lady by the name of Amy Chua. I, I want to slow down for just a minute if that's all right. There's a book written by a, a lady named Amy Chua called World on Fire. And in this book, she's addressing the issue, the question, why, why over history did people hate the Jews so much? Why did, did it come back and back and back again that there was such hatred and persecution towards the Jewish people? See, she wrote in this book that in order to be hated, that a group must be a minority, they must be conspicuous, and they must be successful. They have to look different from everybody else so that you know who they are. They have to be a minority or else wouldn't really do much good to hate them. And they have to be successful or else there would be no reason to hate them. See, it's a recipe for hatred. And what happens is a spirit of fear began to grip the hearts of the children of Israel and Babylon. And they knew that if I don't bow when the music plays, they're going to hate me. And I fear sometimes that across the movement of Christianity and Pentecost as a whole, if perhaps we have acquiesced and we have sacrificed our separation and we have sacrificed our, the success of the fully preached gospel of God just to alleviate a little bit of criticism. Just to spare ourselves from a little bit of hatred. You see, those, those children in Babylon knew if they stood up, there's going to be some people that hated them. They knew if they stood for what they really believed, there's going to be some people that came against them and that hated them. But church, can I tell you that Jesus didn't tell his disciples that you were going to be loved of all men for standing for truth. He said you're going to be hated of all men. Don't sacrifice separation to try and appease the governments of this world. Don't sacrifice the success. Can I preach to somebody tonight? Don't sacrifice the success of the gospel by bowing your knee before ideologies and agendas that would try to deteriorate the word of God just so you can say, well, they're okay with us preaching now. So Nebuchadnezzar begins to look across the crowd. And everybody's bowing down. Everybody looks the same. When the music plays, the, you see the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The ideology, the agenda. And when the music played, everybody bowed. And they all looked the same. But as Nebuchadnezzar began to look across the crowd that day, he saw something that began to puzzle him a little bit. So do you see the same thing I'm seeing? Is it, are they just really tall or are they not bowing? Because everybody around them is, is definitely bowing. But I see a few men who, the music's playing, maybe, maybe they're just deaf. No, I don't think they're deaf. The music's playing, they ought to know that now is the time to bow. And in Daniel chapter 3, the Bible tells us that his aides come before Nebuchadnezzar and says in verse 12, chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, There are certain 
Jews. Not everybody. It was a minority. They looked different from everybody else. But there was certain Jews who said, I don't care how loud the music gets, Nebuchadnezzar. There's only one thing that I bow before, and it's not going to be your image. I don't care how much you hate me. I'm not going to bow before your ideology. I don't care how much you threaten me. I don't care how much you threaten my life. I will not bow before a golden image. So Nebuchadnezzar takes these three boys. He says, listen here, if you don't bow, I'm going to give you one more chance. If you don't bow, we're going to throw you into a fire. And they said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not quick to answer you in this manner. We're not going to bow. You can turn the fire up as hot as you want to, Nebuchadnezzar. We're not going to bow. And there was a hatred that rose up in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. There was a fury. There was an anger. And when the music began to play again, he looked out. And guess what? Those men still weren't bowing. So Nebuchadnezzar, he takes these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he takes them to the fiery furnace. And he throws them into the fire. You see, what Nebuchadnezzar thought was going to destroy them. What he thought was going to destroy these certain Israelites, he didn't realize was just going to repurify the gold that came out of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, you can throw whatever you want to at me. You can throw every threat, every vile word against me. What you thought was going to destroy the church, it's just going to repurify the gold. How do you solve the problem of a gold that has become dimmed? You've got to pass back through the fire. But why? Why did he turn the furnace up seven times hotter? We see Nebuchadnezzar was used to a gold and copper alloy. He was used to other Israelites that had already compromised. And he knew it didn't take a very hot fire to get rid of a compromised golden vessel. But you see, if you want to refine pure gold... You've got to have a fire that's hotter than a fire needed to refine a gold and copper alloy. Church, can I tell this world a message from this church tonight? World, you can throw whatever you want to at this church. You can threaten us all you want to. You can threaten us to bow before your ideologies all you want to. But can I tell you, you better make note of it. That the hotter the fire gets, the purer the gold that comes out of the fire, we will not bow before the ideologies of this world. We will not bow before the identity politics. We will not bow before the agendas, but we are the church and we will be purified by the fire. Would you stand with me tonight? I'm done preaching. I've simply come to ask you this question tonight. How long has it been since you passed through the fire? Preacher, how do I know if it's been too long since I passed through the fire? It's a very simple test, really. If you no longer can tell a difference between you and the rest of the world, 
It's been too long since you passed through the fire. If you dress like the world dresses, if you talk the way the world talks, if you find yourself bowing before the image of the world, if you find yourself walking after your own flesh, and you find yourself walking after the gods of Baal, can I suggest to you tonight that it's been too long since you passed through the fire. But if you would just make your way to an altar and raise your hands before the Lord, you can pass through the fire again and the iniquity can be purged out of you it can repurify a gold that's grown tarnished God can repurify a gold that has grown dim what a powerful message of hope that even though the world can attack even though the world can bring an attack against the church that the hotter the fire gets it just keeps purifying the body of Christ. And once the vessel has been purified one more time, it can stand in the house of God once again. And the glory of the Lord can fall on that vessel. And it can fill the house. And it will begin to reflect off of a vessel of pure gold. And everybody that sees you in your job. Everybody that sees you in your community. When they see you. They won't see a tarnished vessel. But they will see the glory of God. Reflecting off of you. If you haven't passed through the water tonight, we have water. We can baptize you in Jesus' name. If you've never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, don't leave this place until you've passed through the fire and let God purify the gold. Church, I want to be the glorious gold of God. I want the gold, I want the glory of God to descend in this place. Would you lift your hands all across the sanctuary and would you ask the Lord to let his glory descend in this house tonight?